So we're doing our 20 questions uh, series, and um, the the subject that I was given this morning, well, actually, not given, I mean, we came up with the subjects ourselves, didn't we? We thought, I wonder what questions everyone are asking, and we're hoping, actually, you have been asking these questions. If not, then uh, hopefully it's been moderately interesting for you. Uh, but one of the questions we came up with is, uh, you know, how is God my father? But But in exploring that, in spending a bit of time thinking about it, as I've been traveling around and work is in the back process in the back of my mind i slightly changed the question from how is god my father is that, yeah to how do i know that god is my father which which adds a slightly different complexion to it so um i do want to talk through really barriers and obstacles the things that get in our way as followers of jesus christ and actually knowing that god is our father but just before we do that, I did think it would be important to establish something else. Um, and that is that at this church, we do call God Father. Now, you may think, well, I know that. But I think it's quite important just to spend a couple of minutes establishing that. Because in the national Christian scene, there is a growing trend to calling God mother as well as father now i suspect we are already all on the same page in this but if you're new to the church i did just want to put a marker down here as to why we call god father and not just how do we know that god is father but also just cover off this trend that i think you are going to hear more of i remember back in the early 90s being on an enforced baptist minister's quiet day which was a nightmare they make you travel a hundred miles meet up with all your mates and then you're not allowed to speak to them <laughs> i thought i'd you know just give me a day off that'd be better wouldn't it but anyway so i went to a quiet day and the person convening it the only thing we we're allowed to do is the meet to commission a day and they started the day by saying God our mother which jarred me for the whole day and I've had to ask myself why do I feel jarred about that is it cultural is it biblical is it because I'm a bloke from Romford you know what is it about that but I, I think I mean I know Dan would be with me on this we, we very certainly with me on this we call God father here and let me just explain why firstly uh Christian feminist theologians, and they would self-describe as that, and, and are quite vocal in Christian media. And um, if you follow Christian social media or Christian media, you will sometimes see that I have the odd spat online in response to some blog that I've written or some interview somewhere. They argue quite strongly that overuse of masculine terminology has led to patriarchy and the impression of women now i just want to say that i don't think that is true i don't think by adopting a feminine name for god you are going to see less oppression or less violence against women in fact around the world where there is goddess worship for instance in hinduism kali uh, not the kali we know and love here but the kali spelled k-a-l-i just to reassure kali that she's not being worshipped in hyderabad um, 
that that where there is an overabundance of goddess worship, there is actually still the proliferation of violence against women on an epic scale. In fact, in South Asia, violence against women is an epic proportion and there is a strong trend towards goddess worship there. 70% of women in India have said they've experienced some form of domestic assault. 93 women are raped a day in India. In fact, violence against women is, is, is a global epidemic. But masculine language or feminine language isn't the solution to that, uh, in my opinion. It's also worth noting that surrounding Israel, most of the religions of that time actually had goddess figures as the preeminent god that they were worshipping. God actually, it was not a patriarchal society. God stood alone in almost being a, a masculine figure at that time in the ancient Middle East. Number two, uh, just, to, just to put this out there, I'm not going to go into massive detail about this, but nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible are we told to call God mum. We are told to call him father. And Jesus referred to God as our heavenly father. And it's a divine revelation. It's not human understanding. You could, I, I, I thought, I'm going to go through every scripture here. Because you can get concordances that help you do that and online ones, and I looked at every scripture where there's a reference to God as Father to see if there is some alternate view. There are descriptions of God with feminine characteristics as in Isaiah and Hosea and other places, but still in those contexts we're taught to call God Father. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, uh, Yet for us there is one God the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Ephesians 4, 6, one God and Father of all who is over and through all and in all. Matthew 23, 9, call no man your father on earth for you have one Father who is in heaven. We are always told that God is our Father. I think, I just will finish at this point, there is a trend happening in society. Sorry if this is a bit heavy, but sometimes I think you have to put a marker down. There is a trend in society which is doing this. Let's look at how we feel. Let's look at how people want to live their lives. And then we will open the Bible and try and understand the Bible in the light of how we feel about our lives. That is a mistake. What we should be doing is saying, this is the word of God. How do I understand how I feel in my life? in the light of the truth of the word of God. No matter, sometimes it makes me feel a little bit difficult inside. There are some things I don't like. What is the Bible saying to me? I will honestly say to you, as an, as an evangelist, full-time, speaking around the country, I find it emotionally incredibly difficult to tell people that they are facing hell. I don't like that the fact that the Bible has bad news in it. I wish I could be a motivational speaker. I think I could be quite a humorous and very well-paid emotional speaker. I, uh, motivational speaker with emotion. I think I could do that. But the Bible doesn't allow me to do that. There are things in the Bible which are difficult to navigate. But we are committed here at this church to steering a course that is biblical and understanding our lives in the light of Scripture. I just felt it was important to put that there first when we talk about God as father God transcends gender in a way that we can't fathom almost but we are told to call him father so the major question we're all okay with that we got that right if you want to disagree with me 
that's fine. We'll do it over a cup of tea and a custard cream after. Uh, but if you can show me where we call Godmother, I'll, I'll, I'll have the conversation. I'd repent and I'd change my mind. But at the moment, I can't see and I think we've just got to stick to biblical truth as much as we can and, and navigate this sensational adventure called life in a light of scripture. But the big question for me, and it's more pastoral, is what stops us from experiencing God as Father? What stops us from actually knowing that he's our Father? And I have to say that in, oh gosh, nearly 20 years of pastoral ministry, just sitting alongside people, praying with people, walking with people, it has to be one of the major questions that people face. I mean, we have a lot of head knowledge sometimes as evangelicals, but we often find it very hard to connect to the heart. Do you know what I mean? And that can be scary when you start to think about what is it that actually obstructs me knowing God deep in my heart. So I'm just going to, this may not flow brilliantly, but I'm just going to talk through the few things that I felt the Lord give me as I was reflecting on pastoral experiences and walking with people, the, the things that obstruct knowing God as Father. And the first thing, it's not in any particular order, but the first thing I put down was damaged expectations. I think we all start life needing, and I say it word deliberately, needing and expecting unconditional love. And I have to say that as, as good a parent, if you have children, that you seek to be, we will make mistakes. My daughters, sitting here today, will give you a long list of mistakes, what I have made and probably have made in the last couple of days, should you so ask them, please don't. I'd rather debate with you whether God is father or mother. But they will tell you that I'm not a perfect man. I seek to be consistent. Uh, what I hope that what you see at the front is, uh, for the most part, what they see at home characterised, probably not. I mean, there'll be mistakes I made. Last night, I said something I shouldn't have done. I said, sorry. You know, we, we are not perfect. And therefore, no matter how good you seek to be as a dad or a mum, and, you know, we all want to do the best by our kids. We all carry stuff because of our own experiences and we all inflict stuff because we are sinful people and therefore it wouldn't surprise me if in years to come one of my girls or one of your children turns around and says I remember this thing that happened when we were on holiday or that thing you said across the dinner table when I was eating me roast nut roast or whatever in our family when I was eating me nut roast <laughs> that deeply wounded me you know, and, and, and it's just there, and it has to be prayed out. I, over 20 years of praying with people, I've seen that happen from people who come out of the most godly, wonderful families. And therefore, on a degree of scale, there could be people who've had very, very bad experiences of being parented or not had parents. There could be people who their fathers have been abusive. It could be that you're a good bloke and you seem to be a good dad, but just some stuff has gone wrong. That can carry a wound, that can inflict some kind of wound in us that sometimes just needs to be dealt with. I don't want to dwell on this too much, I'm just putting it out there that for some, the very word father 
can be extremely painful. It could be because you lost your dad. It be, could be because of some anger or aggression that was in the home when you were growing up. It could be for any number of reasons. In fact, uh, uh, you know, sometimes it just goes so deep in people, they're not even really aware of it until something happens that sets a little trigger off. It can also be, it's a little bit of psychology this, but it can also have transference issues. If you were ever naughty at school and you were made to stand outside the headmaster's office, I'm sure none of you ever experienced that. Uh, I did. There can be moments when you're in front of an authority figure when all of those memories come flooding back. I remember, after having a fight, Mr. Barnes pushed my face into the corner in the days when you could sort of be moderately violent as a teacher, back in the 80s, <laughs> late 70s. And my face was pushed into the corner of the wall and Mr. Barnes said to me, you filthy, disgusting, horrible child. He said, I don't want to see your face all day, you know, <laughs> and left me standing with me. He said, I want your nose touching the wall, you know, <laughs> standing with my nose touching the corner of the wall outside Mr. Barnes's office. Years later, when I got my first job in the bank and I met my first boss, who was quite an imposing sort of guy, and he sat me down, the memories of Mr. Barnes calling me a disgusting, filthy, horrible child all came flooding back. <laughs> and if we use the wrong language about God, if you come from a Christian environment where God is an austere, remote figure, you can carry that. And therefore, God is unapproachable. It becomes less about relationship and all about fear. Fearing God is biblical, but it gets skewed the wrong way. So we need to think about that. Another issue, and we'll come on to how we deal with this in a bit. Another issue that uh, I felt was quite important would be, uh, in terms of a barrier of knowing God is your father, would be unrepentant sin. Now, again, you might think, oh, it is going all a little bit harsh this morning. But it's true. There are numerous examples in the Bible where the Holy Spirit is grieved and God feels very distant. Like the story of Samson. I haven't got time to go into all of these this morning, but the story of Samson, I think, is extremely chilling in Judges, where Samson has taken a Nazarite vow, don't touch dead bodies, don't touch alcohol, don't have your hair cut, and he's a bit of a partying uh, character goes to parties, probably partakes in alcohol, touches the dead bodies, the lion carcass, has his hair cut, and then he goes out to fight the Philistines, and it says very clearly in Scripture, uh, Samson went out to fight, but the Holy Spirit had left him, and he didn't even know. Because the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 4, is very gentle. We can grieve the Holy Spirit very, very easily. And God just doesn't leave us, but that sharpness of his presence is diminished. I would call it renum and blunt his presence. Now, two things occurred to me as I was thinking about this. I think there's two types of sin to address here. Uh, it's unrepentant. Corporate sin and individual sin. And I felt from the Lord just to I issue a warning more more just put it out there for the future. I think a community of people, Christian people, can develop a corporately sinful culture. 
it can be sort of pernicious really and slowly creep in like arrogance narcissism lack of grace lack of generosity not being loving being countercultural to the beatitudes not being meek not loving the unlovable or the marginalised or the disenfranchised not going the extra mile for people getting a slightly aggressive edge legalistic and I think we all have a responsibility to make sure that this church is overwhelmed by grace and kindness and meekness and gentleness and joy and faithfulness and love you know I think it's so easy for the opposite spirit to creep in and where that happens a church would tend to tear itself apart in my experience one of the hats I wear is uh, I'm the director of a few different things for Elim but one of them is church development which is almost like a code word sometimes for going in and fixing problems I'm like the the Rottweiler who goes in and sorts out the problems and often where there is a serious problem in a church where it's hemorrhaging people there is I would describe it as a corporately sinful culture has crept in in its character and its demeanor so um, I just want to put it out there uh, I looked up all the references where I could see corporate sin happening in scripture and I was so overwhelmed by examples that I haven't listed them but I thought I might actually put something out on a blog that gives all the different examples of how things can happen. One notable example of how an individual sin uh, affected a community, which is a slightly different issue, would be Achan sin. And it might be worth drilling into that at some point. The story of Achan uh, in the Exodus where he was, they were instructed, they went to battle and they were instructed not to steal anything or take any you know, artifacts in a battle, any money or gold and stuff, and Achan did. And that one sin, that one man's sin, infected the whole of the people of Israel, and the army started to lose battles. So I think we all have to be vigilant too to be seeking to live godly lives amongst one another as well. Just an example that sprung to mind, actually. I've never been in a church that's had a problem with its finance. But there was one time in the church that I used to lead before where we suddenly went in a dip and the offering money started to go down and we, for the first time ever we started to run out of money. I thought that's a bit weird and this guy who had a prophetic gift from right outside our situation got in touch with one of our leaders and said, um, I feel, the, and didn't know our financial situation, said it's a big church as well so we shouldn't be running out of money. He said, I feel that somebody in your leadership, I feel the Lord is saying to me that somebody in your leadership is being irresponsible, inappropriate with money. And it turned out that one of the deacons was in a very inappropriate way. And when we dealt with that graciously and we put that right, actually the Lord just started to move again financially. We never had a problem again. It's very, very interesting. So just mindful of corporate sin and our individual responsibility too. Individual sin, unrepentant. Um, do you know God loves you? He really loves you, but but if you're persisting in walking in something you know ain't right, and the Holy Spirit's been telling you, 
but you persist in it. I think, again, we come back to the Ephesians 4 issue. Uh, you grieve the spirit and you numb and blunt his presence. And many, many instructions in Scripture. I mean, you could go to Ephesians 4 later and read it through. Uh, verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your mind, to put on a new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood, speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we're all members of one body, there's that corporate thing. In your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. You give the you give the enemy one little inch, and he'll start to eat you up. Anyone who must be stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander along with every form of malice, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love. Interesting, isn't it? And it's speaking in the context of living in the body of Christ there as well. If we're persisting in a sin, living in a way that is counter to that, you're harming yourself. And it can spiral off into so many different directions and start to bring destruction in people around you as well. Now, I'm not in the business here of naming individual sins and pointing people out because I just doesn't, I don't have that gift and I don't think it's right to do that but suffice to say if I'm making you feel uncomfortable by my words that is not me I would trust that that's the Holy Spirit just gently saying to you put this right put this right if you're a tyrant around the home put it right if you're looking at stuff you shouldn't be looking at Stop it. Put it right. Don't grieve the Spirit of God. If you're dipping your hand in the till, metaphorically speaking, stop it. If you're trying to avoid paying your tax, pay it. If you owe money, pay it. If you've been harsh to your wife or husband, be gentle. Don't just say sorry. Ask for forgiveness and put the power in the other person's view. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. So often people are saying, I, I never encounter God. And yet we carry stuff. And I don't think God wants to beat you up. I think he wants to give you life to the full. And that's why repentance is such a powerful thing. Because it sets us free to be the kind of people that we know we ought to be. And I have to say, looking at scripture... It, the consequences are massive when we don't live like this. I mean, I know David, King David, repented, but you look at what happened to his family. 
as a result of his sin. Thankfully, we are now post-cross, post-resurrection. But David, family falls apart, Amnon rapes his daughter, Another Ab- Absalom kills Amnon and plots to kill David. The child that he committed, a, you know, adultery with Bathsheba, the child dies. Just a trail of destruction going through the family after, even though he was post-repentance in that sense. We're now post-cross, post-resurrection, and God can take care of all our stuff, so why wouldn't we just go and deal with it? So if you're carrying something, that is a reason sometimes why we don't experience God as Father. Another issue, disappointment in God. Thinking that God has let you down. Because you prayed for something and it didn't happen. You asked for healing and it didn't happen. You prayed for a family situation. It it didn't work out. And that might have damaged your trust in God as well. That is again a very deadly thing that creeps into the life of believers. And I just want to put this out there. I think we can learn a lot from Daniel 3 and the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. When they are thrown into the fiery furnace. It's a very fascinating story. They're thrown into the fiery furnace to be killed and their response, look at it later in Daniel chapter 3. Their response is very interesting. They simply say, well, I'm paraphrasing now. Romford Essex Bible paraphrase time. We might die. We might get saved. God may save us. If God saves us, great. If we die, okay. God is still good. What distinguished the God of Israel from all the other goddesses and gods and idols around the ancient Middle East at that time was that the God of Israel was a good God. And they believed in his sovereignty. Whatever happens to me is okay. It's all right. God is God. If we die, we die. If we live, we live. I do think as Christians, in a consumerist culture, we need to transcend this thing that says, I worship God on the good times, but in the bad times he must have left me. I don't think that is true. Life can be full of desert experiences. It is a game of ups and downs. You have good weeks, you have bad weeks. I'll be honest with you, I've had a couple of times lately when I've sat on a sofa and it's all crowding in on me. And, and if, if I wasn't a man, I might have had a little tear. Because <laughs> I've just been absolutely tired. And at times like that, should I allow myself to listen to that little negative inner voice, I think, well, God ain't with me. But I know that it's not true. I know it's not. Theologically, it's not true. If we are walking with God in step with his spirit, it is not true. But we have adopted an understanding that says, God is only with me when I feel it. It's not right. I remember the story, uh, reading about Luther, 
who had to go to this thing, the reformer Luther had to go to this thing called the Diet of Worms, which was actually a theological council. And they were, they were challenging him because he was adopting evangelical views. And they wanted him dead. And he was in a cell. And the stories that he was parading up and this didn't happen last week, this was hundreds of years ago. He was parading up and down in his cell, calling out to God because he could have lost his life. God, where are you? God, where I don't. And he said the next day he felt nothing. All that night he felt nothing. Didn't experience the presence of God at all. But just stood there and said, in a paraphrase again, here I am. God is God. The fact I didn't feel him is irrelevant. The truth is still the truth. And I think if we can develop that robustness, despite any disappointments we feel, it will take us a long way. It really will. Another issue, and there's three here that some people might find a little bit tricky. A lack of repentance at your conversion or your decision to follow Jesus. The reason I say this is there is a trend in preaching very humorous gospel messages that are very funny and filled with warm feelings of love, but no one calls you to repent and change your life and say, you were living this going that direction, now you need to turn around and go that direction. The Bible is very clear, and again, there's a long list of verses, repent, believe, and then be baptised, we'll come on to that one in a minute. But the Bible does tell us to repent. Sometimes people are coming to Christ on a message of love, but they are not making a conscious decision to change their lives as well. And the Bible is clear, you live to please him and our old way of life needs to change. We are to turn around and live a new way. Another issue within this trio at the end is baptism in water. I'm not saying this deliberately to make people feel uncomfortable or because we have a baptismal service tonight. It's just the way it worked out. But it is very interesting. Jesus was baptised. I'm going to read it to you. This is in Luke chapter 3. When he is baptised, something profound happens. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. Now, you could argue that Jesus being the Son of God might not have needed to have been baptised. But for some reason, he decided that it was necessary and he was baptised by John. And then something extraordinary happens. As he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. He didn't say it was a dove, like a dove. Important point. I don't think a pigeon landed on Jesus' head. Like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. You see the Trinity there, I think, for the first time. Isn't that interesting? At the point of his baptism. And then Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tested and then he begins his public ministry. Interesting, I thought to myself. 
I'm not the only Bible teacher or half a Bible teacher to say this. But I've noticed in walking with Christians over the last couple of decades that where one of several things is missing, Christians often bounce a little bit. They hit the bottom and then bounce up again like a bouncing bomb. One of three things have been missing. It'll either be repentance, baptism in water, or baptism in the Holy Spirit. Come on to the last point in a minute. I myself, being a rebellious sort of chap, came to Christ at 18, wasn't baptised until I was 22. I'm sure Karen will vividly and accurately be able to describe to you the slightly tumultuous experience I had as a Christian between 18 and 22. I had a passionate sense of calling to tell people about Jesus with every waking hour of my life. I wanted to be a gospel ministry person. I didn't want to be a reverend. I didn't want to be a clergyman or anything like that. I just wanted to tell people about Jesus. I, I mean, the thought of going to Bible college and getting ordained, I thought, I don't want to bore people for a living. I just want to tell people about Jesus. I didn't want to conduct weddings, funerals, or bar mitzvahs or anything. <laughs> I just wanted to tell people about Jesus. But nothing seemed to happen for me. And my Christian walk was a yo-yo affair. I had good weeks and bad months. And that's just the way it was. And then a senior pastor at the church I was at kind of collared me about baptism. And I didn't want to do it. Do you know why I didn't want to do it? I've been christened as a baby, but to be honest with you, I couldn't remember it. So, you know, that's just the way it was. I can't remember it. I haven't got a bit of paper. No one gave me a Bible. I, I mean, it's, I'm, my mum and dad told me I was christened as a baby. I've got no proof. I can't remember it at all. But I thought, well, that, that'll do. That, that, that's okay. But then someone sat me down and they read the scriptures to me. The objection I came up with was a fudge. I'll be honest with you, I was proud. That was it. I didn't want to stand up in front of my mates or my mum and dad or my sister in my jeans or a pair of shorts and a t-shirt and get pushed underwater by people I'd never met before. I then have to explain it to them. And I thought I was good enough as I was. To be honest with you. I swallowed my pride and I got baptised. All I can do is tell you what happened. As I went under the water, bear in mind I'd had a passionate calling to be an evangelist, but I was flogging insurance. Nothing wrong with that, but it wasn't working out for me at all. I couldn't get into it. It just wasn't working out for me. As I went under the water, and as I came up, just to that point of coming up, I distinctly, as far, i just got to say it, I distinctly had a sense of the Holy Spirit saying to me, now you can go forward. Now you can go forward, son. Within nine months, I, was, I think my notice had gone in on my job. I was at Bible college and planting churches. And that weird? Within nine months. And I think it was just my pride. But something else happens here for Jesus. Not only is he baptised, which I just want to say to you, uh, actually, let's just before I move on, I, let me just say this. If you have not been baptised as an adult, can I just say, it has our wholehearted recommendation as leaders of the church. 
because we see it as biblical. We see it as a biblical rite of passage for those who believe in Jesus Christ. We see it as important. We see it as spiritually significant. We don't just think it's something that you do, like a piece of theatre. We believe that God meets with you in it. It's a sacrament, so to speak. Uh, we do believe in making a conscious decision to follow Jesus and then being baptised. I'm not saying that to put anyone under pressure. If you haven't been baptised, I'm saying I just see it as a deeply biblical command. And I think something profound happens when you do that. It may start for you as a sheer step of obedience to what you see in Scripture, but I think there's a whole lot more to it as well. But then, when Jesus is baptised, you'll see that in Luke chapter 4, it says that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. At the end of them, he was hungry. And then he, he in a sense, he fronts out the enemy he stands on the word of god he overcomes all the temptations he leaves to begin his public ministry and something very significant is put in verse 14 jesus returned to galilee in the power of the spirit the word there is dunamis which simply means miracle working power the next thing i just want to put out there is that I do think obstructions to knowing that God is your Father, disappointment, lack of repentance, baptism in water. Another one is actually receiving prayer to experience God moving in power upon your life. Jesus went into the desert full of the Holy Spirit, came out in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a very interesting thing that happens here in Acts 19. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No. We've not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, What baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There are about 12 men in all. Let me just put this out there very simply. I believe that when you become a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit. I believe we do. It's the Holy Spirit that witnesses to us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You receive the Holy Spirit. I do believe there are moments of encounter as well, where we are full of his power full of moments where we experience him in a different way at a deeper level i would also say here uh, one of my favorite verses in the bible because it had such a profound impact on my life was romans 8:15. for those of you who are led by the spirit we're the children of god the spirit you receive doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again rather the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry Abba Father, the Spirit himself testifies in our spirit that we are God's children. There are people in this church that Dan and I have been praying with and people have been praying amongst one another that we would know God is our Father. And when you have humbled yourself, because sometimes that can be a humbling thing, and you say, would you lay hands on me and pray with me? There are people sitting here this morning who have experienced the presence of God in a new way. Does that mean I don't think you had the Holy Spirit before? No. Does it mean I think God is resting his power upon you in a new way and giving you a deeper understanding of who God is? Yes. Does God want to minister you by the power of the Holy Spirit and, and let you know in your heart that he is your Father? Yes. 
does he want to overcome disappointments in your life by demonstrating to you how much he loves you by the power of the Holy Spirit? Yes. Does he want to help you in your struggle against sin by receiving prayer? Which is why it says in James, confess your sins to one another. Does he want to help you overcome your struggles against sin through the power of the Holy Spirit? Yes. Does he want you to walk in the freedom, liberty, love and joy that comes from knowing that God is your Father? Yes, 100%. Is our relationship as Christians with God a head knowledge thing? No. In part, yes, because we need the truth. Is it also a heart thing? Yes. Did God give us emotions just so that we can cry at Bambi? No. No. God gave us emotions so that we can experience him and connect with him at a deeper level. Have I shed tears at a love of God for me in my life, even though I'm a blokey bloke? Yes. Many times. Have I cried about the wonder of the cross or cried in worship? Yes. They're all things that God gives us. Should we be afraid of our emotions? No. Should we be afraid of joy? No. Sadness? No. An overwhelming joy that God loves us? No, don't be afraid of that. Is that a supernatural thing? Yes. God wants to grant that in your life. He'd want you to confess your sins to one another and deal with the obstructions. He'd want you to be honest with him about disappointments so you can receive peace. He wants to grant you a shalom the like of which you never experienced before. Shalom meaning wholeness and completeness. Does God expect that if you follow him, you'd be baptised in water and die to your old way of life, be raised to a new way of life, demonstrate that boldly in front of people and then receive the power of God? Yes, why would you not? Why would you not? Because he wants to give you so much. Because he loves you. But I just simply think it's about submitting your life to him in every respect. In every respect. And then he'll meet with us. And wouldn't it be great, just to close, before we move to communion, wouldn't it be great if this church carried such a dynamic sense of the love of God the Father that people were wooed by it? They saw the joy, our heart for one another, the honesty, the integrity, the peace. And they were wooed by the, by the character in this church and the joy they see in each other's lives. You're looking at me really miserable as I say the word joy. <laughs> Ultimately, just to say as we move to communion, we know God loves us that much because he sent his son. He sent his son. We deserve hell. And he sends Jesus. I mean, every week we come here, we're celebrating a love that is beyond our human comprehension, aren't we? Really? It's amazing. So we're going to move to communion uh, where we're going to celebrate the fact that God loves us by sending his son. And we're going to do this in a couple of ways. You know that we have the tables here and we get people to take some juice and some bread and pray for one another too I've said it before I just want to reiterate this when we take communion we don't just commune horizontally uh, uh, vertically gotta get that right left side brain we don't just commune vertically we also want to commune horizontally with each other because it's about being a family 
It's not an individualistic thing. This is what theologically is about being a family together and being together as you remember what Jesus has done. But I want to use that as an opportunity as well for you to receive prayer. We'd love to pray for you. That you'd experience God as Father. You'd know him as your Father. You might want to confess stuff. You might want to make a decision and say, do you know what? Stuff my pride. What people think, I want to be baptised. My relationship with Jesus is more important. Come and talk to us. We get excited about tonight together. It's all excited, isn't it? It's going to be great, isn't it? That's what this is about. Now, to do that, there's this fantastic clip of video that we're going to play uh, in just a second. We're going to stand together and watch it. It was uh, it's just to get us excited uh, who Jesus is. There is a wonderful prayer prayed by a man called Dr. Lockridge. He was a Pentecostal pastor. He was uh, asked to, I, I believe he was asked to give a closing prayer at a conference. And I expected he'd just wander up on the stage and say, thanks for the conference, you know, all the normal things you say at the end of conference type prayers, if you've ever done one, and then say, Amen. But he just got overcome by who Jesus was. I think it was his swan song, you know, 40 years of ministry, and this was his prayer. And then uh, Gaz is going to lead us in a song straight after, and then I'll, uh, Dan or I will lead us in communion. And then we'd love to be praying for you. Why don't you stand with me as we play this bit of video? And you just I think you're going to love it. This just explains who Jesus is. Says, My king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, he 
His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And His yoke is easy. And His burden is light. I wish I could describe Him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get Him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get Him off of your head. You can't outlive Him, and you can't live without Him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand Him, but they found out they couldn't stop Him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in Him. Herod couldn't kill Him. Death couldn't handle Him. And the grave 